0: So we remain lay, which is why you see, I'm not wearing a habit, right? Um, Really, I'm just like you, except that I'm married to Jesus through my vow of chastity, right? But I'm called, you're called to holiness just as I am. And hopefully my way of living my state of life alongside you will help you to discover holiness in your state of life. So that's a little bit of an explanation. And those of us who are lay consecrated, and diversity live together in communities and homes together, normally residential homes. Um, so ours is up and coming, Georgia, near the Pine, on the Pinecrest Academy campus. And this is a picture of my community. Currently, there's I think seven in the picture. Will be eight by the end of the year because so we have another one moving down to Atlanta to join us. But anyway, just a little overview of that to get that curiosity out of the way. So what I thought to discuss tonight honestly, is um, just my personal experience of Marian consecration, because I know you've been going through the videos of Father Gately. Um, I did Father Gately's consecration in 2013, and so I know it's a very complete overview of the theology of the spiritual aspects of this beautiful consecration. Um, And sometimes what helps is just to like, hear somebody's experience of their relationship with Our Lady which is going to be very different than yours because it's mine, and each one has a very unique unique relationship with her. But it might help you to think about your own life and see where she's been acting and what role she's been taking in your life. So I'm going to start by saying that I have a theory that um, for each person, God, God has a certain role that he wants to play in your life. He wants to be someone for you. That he's not for anybody else. Just as you are someone for God that nobody else is, right? Because his love is infinite. It has infinite facets, infinite nuances. And so um, there are going to be desires and needs in your heart that only God can fill. And he's going to um, fill it just the way that you need. And it's also true, I think. While he, he plays a specific role for you, he fills a specific need for you, there's gonna be different needs at different times of your life that he's gonna fill. So for example, um, in my life I, I realized that the when I decided 20 years ago to consecrate my life in chastity, part of coming to that decision was realizing that for me, I had always known deep down that God for me was a lover and a spouse, and I couldn't see him any other way. And I couldn't, um, I couldn't conceive of my relationship with him any other way. And I realized that trying to have relationships with, with other guys, right, thinking about marriage or whatever it was, for me was like saying, I'm just going to be friends with Jesus. And he was like, we can't just be friends. That doesn't work. right?" That's my experience of my relationship with him. Everyone has a different one. But there's other moments in my life, even since then, even though I would say that's the overarching, that's the main flavor, the main tone of my relationship with him, where God has become very present as my father, as a very loving father, or as um, the, the Holy Spirit inspiring me, pushing me, motivating me, whatever it is. And that corresponds to different needs that I had at different moments in my life. And I think that our lady does this too, right? I've noticed in my life, and that's what I'm gonna share with you, different moments where she's been different things for me. Part of it is me growing in my understanding of my relationship with her, and part of it is her um, stepping in and filling needs that I didn't even know that I had. So, and I have here different images of different titles of our lady and each one symbolizes a different stage in my relationship with her, so I'll explain the picture eventually while it's up there. But for now, we'll just leave her in a neighborhood there. And I would just start by saying that I grew up in a family that prayed the rosary daily. Um, Since as as long as I can remember, my grandmother, who just passed away at 92 years old in February, um, loved the rosary so much that she really, I mean, my, my grandfather, she and my grandfather were married 70 years. And he tells the story that when they were first married, she wanted to pray the rosary every day. And he was like, this is a lot of praying. Like, not, not interested. But he did it for her, and after a while, he grew really to love the rosary. And then they started praying today, together every day as a couple, as a family. Then my family started praying the rosary every day. When she passed away in February, she'd been suffering from dementia very badly for the last few years. But in those last weeks, her memory span was about two to five minutes long. So every two to five minutes, she would restart the rosary. And my poor grandpa was like, I cannot pray any more rosaries. We've prayed like 20 rosaries every single day. So that's the point where you start telling her, we don't pray rosaries before lunch, we don't. you know.' But I thought it was so beautiful that that, when everything else breaks down in your life, when everything else has been taken away, she doesn't even remember her grandchildren sometimes or whatever. She remembered how to pray the rosary, and that's what she would claim to and go to. So that's the environment I grew up in, right, that the rosary was every day. I had the gift through Redman Christie of being introduced to a friendship with Jesus when I was about 12 years old. At that moment, really, he became somebody real for me. He became um, a friend. He became a person in my life. That never actually really happened with Our Lady, in spite of this experience of daily rosary and you know all of that. Um, Our Lady for me was really just this nice holy lady that um, you know was more about the vocal prayers that you would do and and not so much about um, knowing her even as a person. I would say um, now looking back, she was kind of like even as I the first year I was consecrated. Kind of like a nice mother-in-law, you know, like um she wanted me to be nice to her son, she loved her son, I loved her son, she wanted me to be nice to her son, so her helping me was always trying to get me to be better because that's who I was supposed to be, but I didn't really feel any any connection to her, and I didn't ever really want to talk to her. Honestly, I was always kind of like you're in the way, like can I not just please talk to Jesus directly? Why do I have to Whereas I always like, Oh, you should be close to our lady, we're close to our lady. And I don't, I don't need to talk to her. Um, but I tried, because everyone was always like, oh, it's very important. Your relationship with identity is very important. So I tried, and I tried, and I tried. I admired what I knew about her, that she was somebody that loved Jesus with all of her heart, that she was totally open to God's will, that all these things, and I wanted to be like that, but I didn't feel any connection to her, right? So shortly before my final vows, I was assigned to work in Mexico, as, as Francesca mentioned. And um, that was a very interesting experience for me because I knew, joining Red and Christie, that I was becoming a Sharon. Um But I was the girl that really never pictured living anywhere outside of St. Louis. I wanted to live down the street from my mom and you know, have a ton of kids and um, yeah, very, very happy in my little Midwest life. And all of a sudden, I find myself on a bus in the middle of Mexico driving to Mexico City because um, John Paul II, that's how old I am then, John Paul II was alive and was going to canonize Juan Diego. He was going to the Basilica of Guadalupe to do this. And here I am in the middle of Mexico on this bus driving across the country and I'm like, what am I doing? Like, how how did I get here and why am I here, you know? Just one of those like wake up moments of like, is this really my life, is this really me? And um, obviously, the only reason I would be doing that is because God is asking it of me, and I knew that. But when I got to the Basilica, so this was this humongous mass, and um, John Paul II was obviously going to be inside the Basilica for the canonization, but there was the whole plaza, which was very large, which was just filled and filled and filled with chairs. So you're very lucky to get a chair in the plaza, so you could even just see the Pope go by on the Pope mobile. So we got there at like the crack of dawn, so we could wait for hours and hours and hours for the mass to start with a, a group of other consecrated women. I'd never, again, I'd never been to Mexico City before. I'd heard the stories of our Lady of Guadalupe. I don't know if all of you are familiar with it, but it's an extraordinary, if you ever read about or study anything about the actual tilma itself. And one of the things they tell you is that it has a body temperature because our Lady is actually present there. Right? There's a lot of scientific studies they've done on that, that are amazing. So I knew this in my head, but I wasn't really thinking about it when we got there at the crack of dawn, and the big huge doors of the basilica were closed, but there's these like windows alongside each of the doors of the basilica. And where I was sitting down, I realized as I looked up that I could see straight through the window all the way to this image that was there of our lady on the wall. And I just knew at that, in that moment, like, she's here. It was if you've ever had a very strong experience of the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, you know it in faith, but there's a moment where you're just like, Oh, I know he's here. It was that experience for me with our lady of like she's here. And I realized then at that moment that this one of the among the many reasons that maybe I was in Mexico right now was that God Himself had brought me so that his mother could prepare me for my final vows. And um it was just a very vivid grace of experience from her presence, experiencing her as someone real. It was a, in a moment of really a piece of presence and of joy that I still I still feel whenever I see an image of Guadalupe, there's something about that motherly presence that even if it's just a, a, a replica a replica of the image I know I know that she's there right. So as I said, overall, nice mother-in-law something that helped me a lot in this stage is that in my prayer if you've ever tried kind of like ignatian contemplation just really using your your imagination to kind of imagine yourself in a scene maybe in the gospel maybe somewhere else with jesus with our lady and interact with them in your heart and your imagination it can be very powerful and at that time something i would do that did really help me a lot to try to get closer to her was pick a place in my life where, a place that I felt safe and I felt happy, and at home, which for me was my grandpa's cattle ranch, the kitchen in the, the ranch house. And I would go in my prayer, and I would just sit at the kitchen table and drink coffee and talk to her, and just talk about my day and what was happening. And that, that went a long way towards helping me to at least start to open my heart to getting to know her. I Something about being in Mexico, not just the experience of our living, but just those years, I would say um, did open my heart to start to see her as a mother. If anyone, um, you know, if you're familiar with Spanish hymns about Our Lady, it's very interesting culturally. I see a big difference having lived there. In English, in our English hymns, Our Lady is queen. She's the star of the sea. She's all of these things, right? In Mexico, she's mother, and it's very different. Um, the, the, the tenderness that's in each of those hymns, it's, it's a very different feel, it's a very different experience, and I think that started to open my heart. So then the next stage, here we have an image of Our Lady of Kabebo, anyone is familiar with her. Um, came through reading a book. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the book Left to Tell by Immaculate Mamedisa. It's a very, very powerful book. It's a little, um, probably a little bit old now uh, for some of you, but um, I guess the early 2000s, early 2010, yeah, 2000 to 2010, there was a series of books written by this woman who had survived the Rwandan Holocaust. It's a very powerful story. She survived hidden in a bathroom for several months, but she tells about her experience of God, and through through that survival and what God did in her heart, and what he taught her during that time, it's very beautiful. So the first two stories, she, the first two books she writes are about her experience of the genocide and their survival, and then when she came to the United States and how she put her life together after that. Beautiful books, love to tell, led by faith. The third book she wrote was called Our Lady of Cabejo, and it was really her um, her reflecting her love of Our Lady that she experienced through the devotion to this apparition that happened in Africa. So she tells the story when she was a little girl. Her mom had told her about the children of Fatima, the story of Fatima. And she loved it so much was so fascinated by it that she and her little brother, when they were like kids, would go out to a hill and dress up like shepherds, hoping they could trick our lady into coming and visiting them too, because they are like, well, maybe if she sees us and thinks we're the shepherd children, she'll come talk to us, right? Anyway. Um, A few months passed, she was disappointed, she gave up, Our Lady's not coming, whatever. And then one day her dad came home and said, Our Lady's appearing in Rwanda, in Cabajo." And so the story's very beautiful, but Our Lady came before the genocide to warn the people to pray for peace because of the genocide that was coming, she knew of it. But anyway, at one point, Immaculate expresses her joy of, um, the second her dad told her, her thought was, I knew it, I knew Our Lady loved me enough to come to Rwanda, and she came. And it was like, even though she was a little bit jealous that she wasn't the one that Our Lady came to, she came, right? When, um, I was thinking about that story a little bit later in a prayer, in a visit in the chapel, and it struck me that Immaculate had said, Our Lady loved me enough to come to Rwanda. And for the first time in my life, I realized Our Lady loves Me, It's not, she doesn't just like love Jesus and because of Jesus she tolerates me, right? She loves me. She wants to be my mother. And it touched me so much that I really just started bawling right there. And for months afterwards, actually, every time I would think about her, I would just start crying because it was like, I had no idea. Like this person's been in my life all this time and I had no idea that she loved me this way. Interestingly enough, a very tender experience of God as my father Followed within the next few years, very powerful, um, that marked my spiritual life in a profound way, and I think she probably opened the door to that. And it made me realize that this is the kind of mother and the kind of woman that I want to be, right? As a consecrated woman, we talk about our spiritual motherhood a lot, um, but it's not like I'm just a spiritual mother to the pers- the people that I'm taking care of right now. If I work in a school, I'm not just a spiritual mother for the kids in the school, I'm not just... Like Our Lady, I'm called to be a mother of humanity. I'm called to be a mother in some way of every single person that I meet. Even if my own parents, right? Spiritually, I'm called to pray for them and mother them. And this experience of Our Lady's motherhood, for me, helped me to start to understand that, understand my mission deeper around that time, well within the next few years, is when I did the 33-day consecration through Father David's beautiful book. And um, one of the things, I guess two two things kind of stand out to me remembering that time. One is again, this idea that struck me out of the blue shortly before my consecration, that she's proud of me, which I never thought Whatever I would ever experience. I didn't even realize that I needed that. I needed her as my mother to be proud of me, but I felt her telling me that. Right? She takes joy and pride in every thing, every effort that I make, every good thing that I do. She's encouraging me when I fall. And the other, I, I think they talk a lot. Father Gately talks a lot. Well, and also Louis Montfort, right? About um, giving all of our merits, giving all of our sacrifices, giving everything spiritually into our Lady's hands. Um, and that idea for me was like, again, a little bit of maybe leftover from before but like, but why? I mean, I just give them to Jesus but I have to like give them to her, I have like to go through her. But a very um, powerful person in my spiritual life always has been Tres Omosu and if you've ever read anything from her, she has this concept that kind of comes up over and over and she talks about the idea of appearing before God with empty hands because at some point when we're starting our spiritual life we kind of think we need to earn our holiness we need to earn heaven we need to earn our crown we need to earn she herself even thought that at the beginning you read some of her early letters she thought that but later on you see that she realizes like no it's actually I need to let go of anything that I could earn let it go because the point is uh, he's he's mine and he's infinitely rich so I'd rather give everything I have to him, leave my hands empty and let him give me all of his his merits, his wealth, his everything, right? So I get into heaven because of what he's done, not because of what I've done. And right before I made the consecration it just became very clear to me like this desire I've had to, to live kind of that... Um, aspiration of trust to have empty hands, the best way to do that was to give everything into the hands of our lady. So everything, every sacrifice I make, every person I pray for, every everything, I don't need to collect it for myself. I don't, sometimes we get this idea of like, okay, I don't know, this person's suffering a lot, I need to pray for them, so I'm gonna like, think of a huge sacrifice to do, something very, very hard, almost kind of like you can like strong arm God or convince God to give you what you want. And tress says the opposite. Right, you you just you trust. Actually, you look overwhelmed him with the fact that you trust so much in him. Um, And I I felt like giving all of that to our Lady was sort of me being able to say, like, look, I'm not. I trust you. I'm not even going to pay attention to this. I'm just giving it to her. She'll know what to do with it. And I'm going to be here with my hands empty and open and waiting for you to fill them. And so that it just gave me a lot of peace because it fit right into my own my own spiritual experience. So then, the next stage, I would say, of my experience with her came when I started to work as a dean of students in a college for young women that were discerning their vocation. I um, was helping with the vocation discernment for a young woman who had already entered, who had already started the journey of consecrated life. Um, but we were going through an institutional crisis, if any of you know the um, Well, the scandal and everything that happened with our founder um, in about 2009, all of these things erupted that I won't go into now. I'm all over the internet, but anyway, it was a lot of soul searching and institutional reform and kind of things breaking down to be rebuilt. In the midst of that, I have these young women that I'm taking care of that are supposed to be discerning their vocation, but they have no idea what they're even discerning at this point. They don't know what to look to, and um, the stress began to produce. Like we, I began to see a lot of. Psychological breakdowns in different ways: eating disorders, anxiety, depression, um, from things they carried from before, but also from the reality of what was going on. And I started carrying them, right? And I started really—I um, was young, I was inexperienced, I didn't know what needed to be done, but I knew that I—I I needed to be there, and I needed to be like strong, and I needed to be like everything for everyone all the time, right? Obviously not true, but that's what—that's how I was reacting. And there was one moment in particular I remember just thinking like, I'm at the breaking point. I i have to keep giving myself because these people need me, but I don't know what else to do. And, and suffering a lot for them, right? Around that time, we were rewriting our first draft of the new constitutions, and we were debating who the patrons of the consecrated women, we're going to be because every congregation, every society of apostolic life, whatever it may be, they usually have patrons that they take care of. them, patron saint, and historically, a patron saint in right when Christie had been Our Lady of Sorrows, and I always hated it. I was like, how unmotivating how depressing. Like she's always like in black, swathed in black, looking up to heaven, you know, bawling her eyes out with swords in her heart. I mean, it's like, why would we want her for a patron? So I I thought there was kind of a consensus among all of us that we were going to do away with that one. So we sent the representatives to Rome for this big assembly, and um, out of nowhere they reaffirmed our Lady of Sorrows, and we were all like shocked. So I found this out Christmas Eve in the morning that we had reaffirmed that our Lady of Sorrows was going to be one of the patrons, and I remember going to one of the representatives and saying like, that had been in the in the assembly like, what happened? And she's like, what? I don't know. It just like. It happened so fast that it just, you know, I'm trying to explain, but it seemed like there was a movement of the Holy Spirit that just sort of took over and, and it happened. Anyway, I was not happy. We have this um, tradition among the consecrated women that on Christmas Eve, after Christmas dinner, we gather together and we draw names um, so that you get a patron saint for the year of somebody that's gonna take care of you and a virtue they were known for and that they can like help you live that virtue. So I remember saying to this person, well, I just, better not get her for my patron saint tonight. Obviously, you can imagine what happened. Um, I walked up to get, like, you draw your number, and then they look at the number, and it corresponds to a name. I go up, I draw my number, and I knew, as soon as I picked the number, I knew, like, here it comes. And it was Our Lady of Sorrows. And the virtue was intimacy with Christ in suffering. So normally when you get one of those virtues for the year, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be crucified this year. Like, what is going to happen to me this year that I get this like intimacy with Christ and suffering thing? Um, but actually, at that moment, when I looked at the card and I read the virtue, I felt it was more like a promise, like God saying to me, you are already suffering, and I know you're suffering because of all these situations that are going on. And I promise you, you will find intimacy with me in the midst of that. So I still was unhappy about our Lydia Sorrows, but I was like, Well, okay, I like that virtue, that's fine. I I ended up talking to my spiritual director, who's a diocesan priest, and I told him this whole story, and he's like, I'm going to give you my statue of Our Lady of Sorrows. And I was like, no, 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 that's fine. He's like, no, no, no. So he runs off to his room, he comes back, and he gives me a a statue of this image, which is Our Lady of La Salette, actually, not Our Lady of Sorrows. And, um, you know, she's there weeping into her hands. For him, he thinks that's the image of Our Lady of Sorrows. And I could tell as he was telling me about it, for him it was like, when he sees it, as a priest, he's like, what have I done to make my mother weep, and I need to be better for her, right? When I saw it, immediately I thought, she's weeping with me. And that, um, that started to change my heart. Shortly after that, somebody said to me that one of the reasons in our assembly that this had come up, they talked about our lady of was um, that they called her, she who can suffer with the one that she loves. And that's what I felt like I was already doing. I love these people, and I'm suffering with them. So suddenly it was like somebody that could understand empathic suffering, someone that could be with me in the midst of that, and um, start teaching me what spiritual motherhood really means. And what I didn't realize at this time is that I was well on my way into compassion fatigue, if anyone's aware of what compassion fatigue is. Um, Very common among like healthcare workers, any of the, any of the healthy professions, right? That you could just get burnt out from not having enough boundaries in your life to take, to disconnect from the care that you're giving to other people, so that you can be healthy enough to keep giving to them. Like you just like, basically the gas tank runs empty and you just keep going on the fuse, It's not good, I mean, you get bitter, you get jaded, you get cynical, you get tired, overreactive. So that's basically what was happening to me. I remember at that time uh, describing it like, I feel like there's like acid inside of me, like battery acid burning me inside. And every time I'm around a negative situation or people that are in a bad mood, it's like it gets more acidic and it starts reacting, and I just feel more bitter and more upset and angry. Um, so that was you know, a year after I had finished as DNA you know, students, finished that role, and you know, things had concluded, but I was still sort of like dragging this along and probably living an unhealthy way, living even the spiritual directions and the people that I was guiding more on a on a less, you know, less frequent basis, but I was still involved with them. It was kind of this overprotective, overreacting situation. And randomly, I was invited to go on this pilgrimage with a group of people that I had, I did not know, but because I was a consecrated woman, was working in Dallas at the time, they wanted me to come, um, to Lourdes and Fatima. And so it was the year of mercy, beautiful, um, time to go. And that, that year I was actually doing the 33-day consecration to merciful love that Father Gately did, which I highly recommend, especially if you ever want to understand spirituality and try to to you, you have to read that book. He does such a good job. Anyway, when I was preparing to go, my spiritual director told me, like, in the year of mercy, think about this, like every time our lady appeared, she came to bring God's mercy in some way. She came to Lord's to bring his mercy and experience of his mercy through physical healing and fathom of the call to conversion, but it's always his mercy, right? So we get to Lourdes. Um, we've been traveling for like 24 hours, right, totally exhausted. We get there in the afternoon, and our tour guide is like, okay, if you want to do the baths, you have the next two hours. If anyone knows what the baths are, so that there's this spring in Lourdes, the miraculous spring that came after the operations of Our Lady that has the healing waters, right, that so many people have been healed. And there are some baths that they set up that you can actually, like, go through them and be dumped in the in the water um, just to, like, immerse yourself totally in the in the spring. It was April. It's in the mountains. It was absolutely freezing. It was like ice water, right? But I was like, well, oh, I, I didn't prepare myself for this. I didn't think about if I was going to do the baths or not. you know? But at that moment, it was just, like, so obvious God saying, like, why would you not want to be immersed totally in my mercy? That's what this is going to be. Go be immersed in my mercy. And so I did... Um, the other women there, we all went together um, through the baths. And afterwards, and for the rest of my time, the next like two and a half days in Lourdes, I felt like that, that acid feeling was gone, and it was more like there was like cool water inside of me. And it was just this complete peace and tranquility and kind of like being enveloped in Our Lady's love for the time that I was there. I did not want to leave Lourdes, um, even though we were going from there to Fatima. I was like, I don't want to leave. So beautiful, and still when I see pictures of Lords, um, which that first picture I had at the beginning was the, the beautiful basilica there, which for me was like magic. The candlelight procession was like magic at a Disney castle or something. It was under the stars, so incredibly beautiful. I didn't want to leave. But we went to Fatima, and Fatima was a different experience for me because then all of those, all of that fatigue that I was talking about comes back, right? And um, the feeling of the cool water was gone. It was like, okay, now we're back to me, me, myself, and and Our Lady, hopefully. And I remember we arrived there in the evening, the first night I went down to the plaza and had to pray before the image of Our Lady. And I just felt her saying like, let me give you my joy. It was Easter season, actually it was like um, five years ago last week that I was there. And she just said me, let me give you my joy. And I didn't know what that meant, but it was just kind of like, please, I'll do anything to you know, get out of this experience right now. Um, and the rest of my time in Fatima was very like, simple and peaceful, but there was one moment where I had a day to pray by myself. They let the pilgrims just go off and go look at different um, museums and things like that. And I started just wandering around the main basilica. And under it, so there's the old basilica, and then there's the new basilica, which is much larger in the crypt under the new basilica, I found this chapel that was called the Chapel of the Resurrection. And I don't know why, but I just felt called to go in there and pray, and it was like our Lady saying, like, this joy of the resurrection that's mine, I, I want you to have it, right? I want you to open your heart to it. So that, um, I, I won't say that it got better right away, but eventually, after, you know, seven months of bringing back the graces with me and praying over the graces and everything, I felt, and I'll explain this in a second, but I, I felt like the acid went away and that cool Lord's water came back and it stayed, right? Sorry, there's Fatma. I think it's that month. So then Our Lady of Sorrows returned. Um, this is an image of the Our Lady of, of Sorrows Chapel at the National Shrine in Washington, D.C., I love this image of her. So probably, I don't know, six months after my trip to Lords in Fatima, I was praying and I was praying again about all of these people that I was worried about, that I thought I had to carry, that I was stressing out about. How do I fix their lives? And um, I just was talking to our lady about it, and she was like, "Look, I I walked with Jesus on the way of the cross." And nobody wanted to take the cross away from him more than I did. But I didn't do it. I, I, I just walked with him. I couldn't take the cross away. I had to let him have the cross. I had to let him die on the cross. And all I could do was be with him. And that's all you're asked to do. You're not asked to take the cross away from people. You're just asked to walk with them as they carry their own cross and strengthen them. By your love, them. strengthen them and carry their cross and that I think was when actually, in spite of the fact we were talking about our lady of sorrows and and suffering, that was when she gave me her joy because I started to realize that um, in a sense, you know, she who had been like a nice mother in law, right? And then my mother was now my mother in a deeper way was now like a mentor in my own spiritual motherhood and was helping me to, to live it as she did, right? Hopefully heroically. So I just want to conclude by saying that I think God can have very, you know, a lot of different roles in our lives. He can be father, he can be spouse, he can be fire. Our lady can be mother, she can be friend, all of these things. And I think sometimes when we're starting out, as I did, we kind of think like, there's not enough room for all these people in my life. You know, like even the saints or whatever, like I don't, I don't have enough mental capacity to be talking to all these people at once and how do I prioritize? And, but I've actually found as I grow in my relationship with them that there is no contradiction because his love is infinite, has infinite facets, right? But it's all one love. And so whatever whatever door of his love I enter, it brings me closer to the others. The more I love Jesus as my spouse, the more he brings me to his father. The more I love Our Lady as my mother, the more she brings me to Jesus as my spouse. And so... Um, I just wanna encourage you all, I think, as you look at your own stories and your Marian consecration, to say, okay, what is the relationship I'm being invited to right now? Don't worry about if it's not all the relationships with all of the you know, persons of the Trinity and all the saints and all the whatever. There's someone, there's some relationship in front of you right now, and it's probably our lady. Um, walk through that door with her, um, take, take her hand, Open your heart to that relationship, and it's just going to draw you in further to all the other relationships that, that you desire. So, that's my thoughts on that. I don't know what time it is. How much time do we have? Okay, I have a few questions I'm just going to leave up here. Then maybe you can discuss at your tables. So maybe each person can just share um, your thoughts on these questions or whatever, and then I think we're going to have a QA. This mm-hmm.